everything's fine. I'm almost sure of it. I said almost. <laughs> well, hey, it's good to be back with you today. Um, Pastor Sterling, by the way, if you were hoping to see him, he's at uh, Kesslinger this morning and uh, preaching there. And so he sends his love and he misses you. And he said, you have to settle for me. So sorry about that. Uh, let's pray as we open up God's word. <coughs> Heavenly Father, um, thank you for today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us. Father, we, we just are so grateful that we can come together as a church and we worship your name freely. <coughs> Father, we think of those around the world that, that can't do that. God, we pray for them. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Lord, we pray for them. Father, as we open up your word, would you just remind us um, of all that you've given us, and Lord, that you are still moving in us here and all around the world. We pray for peace. Lord, we pray for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Uh, well, some of you know this. Uh, I'm the youngest of two kids. My, my older brother, Nick, he's two years older than me. Um, and growing up, some of my fondest memories with my brother would happen when our parents would leave us um, on, on our own for the night. Um, and so when, whenever that would happen, as it, we started to get older, they would do this. And so whenever they would leave us for the night, we developed this tradition uh, where we would spend the whole night physically fighting each other. It was great. Um, and he was, like I said, older than me, and he was stronger than me. And so it would never really go well for me. And so I, I'm not really sure why, but I would still look forward to these times. And, and we would just spend the night just in this like marathon wrestling match, and, and we would just destroy the house. Stuff would just be everywhere, things have fallen, things have broken, nothing was where it should be, just a complete mess of things. Until we got a call or a text from our parents that they were coming back. When that happened, when we knew that they were coming home, everything changed. And we immediately became allies because we knew that we had to clean this place up so that they didn't catch on to what we were doing. And so it kind of felt like covering up a crime that you both committed and were the victim of, which was a little strange. Um, and so we're just running around. We're putting the house back together, throwing stuff back where it should be. And, and they would get back, they would come home, and we would just be sitting there, like, pretending to, like, read our Bibles or something, just, like, drenched in sweat. Like, oh, it's so nice to see you there. And I can't wait. It was so much fun. I can't wait uh, for my son to lie to me in the same way one day. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, we're continuing today our, our Following the King series. We've been looking at this. If you were here last week, we talked about one of the most famous things that Jesus has ever said. This famous, this, this great commandment, this commandment to love God and to love others. And we talked about this, how important these words were, how Jesus was tying these two things together forever, saying that if you truly want to love God, you have to love your neighbor and vice versa. And so as famous, as, as, as relatively straightforward as that passage was, today we turn to one that has confused and confounded people for generations. As Jesus talks about the future of the kingdom, and in particular, two things that we'll see today. The destruction of Jerusalem and the end of human history, what we call the end times. The reality that Jesus is coming back and coming home. Our goal today is not just to see Jesus' words, but to realize the same thing that my brother and I experienced as kids. That the knowledge of what is to come, the knowledge that Jesus is coming back, 
changes everything about what we do. The fancy word to describe today's passage is apocalyptic literature. I can barely say that. In other words, things that are written that reveal what is ahead. And it's important when we read passages like this one that we agree to some ground rules ahead of time. So here are the ground rules. To read with humility, understanding that it is not our place to, uh, to know and to understand every truth about the universe. To read with faith, knowing that we can trust what Jesus said. To read with open hands, knowing that people who love Jesus disagree about a lot of the things that we're going to be seeing today. And then finally, and this is an important one, to not come out of this time together believing that we can or should predict when the end of the world is coming. So, instead, let's look to the words of Jesus and see three things. We'll see a warning, a promise, and a command. We'll start with a warning. Um, I might have shared this before. I have a theory about marriage. My theory about marriage is that there are two types of people in the world, people who need to be on time everywhere they go, and people that could care less about being on time anywhere they go, and because this is a fallen world, they always marry each other. At least that's the case for me and my wife. I, I try to be gracious and parent, and we have a newborn now, and so I, I'm aware that that makes doing anything or going anywhere more difficult, but those of us that are punctual people know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know that anxiety that you feel when you see the clock and it's just ticking and ticking and ticking, and, and it takes everything within you to not say, when are we going to be ready to go? Don't look at your spouse. Trust me, you don't want to do that. I saw something, uh, someone posted this recently. It said, uh, men, when she says she needs five minutes, think about it as if there are five minutes left in the fourth quarter and both teams have all their timeouts. It's been helpful for me. And yet this type of question is what we see the disciples ask Jesus on this day. So let's turn to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to dive into this text. Mark chapter 13, uh, we'll start in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign? that they are all about to be fulfilled. Let's pause here. Try, if you can, uh, to, to picture this with me. Now, remember kind of the context of where we're at in the story of Jesus, that this is the last week of his life, that he has entered Jerusalem, the, the triumphal entry. People are chanting and cheering for him as he comes into the city. And the last time we saw him, he was uh, interacting and, and talking to the religious experts of the day, and they're trying to confuse and trick him, and they bring him all of these questions, and he proves his knowledge and his wisdom to be greater than even the brightest minds of the day. And so this is all happening, and then they leave the temple, which was this huge complex that had been just rebuilt. It was the length of over four football fields, and the disciples are marveling at it. Look how amazing this is. Maybe you remember going downtown for the first time, looking up and seeing how big those skyscrapers really are. This is how they felt that day. Now, we don't necessarily feel the same way about our church buildings, but to the Jewish people, the temple was a central part of their faith and even their identity. 
They saw this temple as a sign of the presence and power of God among them. In fact, people would actually swear by the temple. Like you and I might say, we, we say this on a loved one's grave. That's how serious they took this. They loved the temple. It was the center of their religion. They would make sacrifices and give money, and, and there were even certain areas where only the holiest of people could go. And this is one of Jesus' patterns throughout his ministry. One of the things that got him in trouble so often, that he diminished the role of the temple. He says this in Matthew chapter 12, talking about himself, that something greater than the temple is here. We see this over and over. In fact, we talked about it last week, how Jesus always stands against a, a faith that is solely focused on rules and rituals and power. That more than sacrifice, God desires mercy. That this temple was supposed to be a holy place, but it had been corrupted by the very people that were supposed to watch over it. All of this outer beauty, all of the majesty, as amazing as it looked on the outside, none of that could cover up the emptiness inside. We talked about this, how there's a danger for us to be the same way, to rely on outer works and appearing good enough to the people around us and yet empty on the inside, that God desires our love and our hearts to be pure, more than anything else. Here Jesus says, as impressive as all this looks to you, it's all going to fall. This would have been shocking for the disciples to hear that day. That this amazing complex, these beautiful buildings, these stones that weighed hundreds of tons, just this incredible achievement, it was all going to come down. Later on, and we'll see this in a few moments, he says that this will all take place within this generation, which, biblically speaking, is within 40 years, it's all going to come down. He was right. 37 years after this day, in 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple, and not a stone was left standing. This would have been unimaginable to the Jewish people. In fact, many people believe that if the temple was destroyed, then that had to have been a sign that the end times were here. We see this in, in Matthew's version of this story in, in his gospel, which is most directed towards a Jewish audience. The question the disciples ask Jesus is, what will be the sign of your coming, which that sounds familiar to us, and then it says, and of the end of the age. And in response, Jesus speaks prophetically at two different levels, and it's important for us that we understand this going into this text. He speaks at two different levels. On one level, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, something that can be proven. And at the second level, speaking of the end times, the end of the world, which must be trusted. This informs his answer. Let's look at it starting in verse 5. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So, here's the warning that Jesus gave, if I lost you along the way there. Two things are going to happen. The world is going to suffer, and you are going to suffer. Not the best news. The world is going to suffer. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of us. Look at verse 8. Earthquakes and famines and natural disasters will come, but this is just the beginning. The world will suffer, but not only that, you will suffer as well. Jesus tells his disciples that they will be arrested, beaten, and brought to trial, that families will betray each other, and then in verse 13, that there will be those that oppose you, persecute you, and even hate you because of your faith. Uh, each year, there's an organization called Open Doors um, that releases a report summarizing the countries all around the world in which it's hardest to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. This year, for the first time since they started this report, I believe around 30 years ago, uh, there was a new number one. North Korea had actually been number one every year until this year, where Afghanistan took the number one spot. In fact, an Afghan Christian's family, um, if someone in their family converts to Christianity, starts following Jesus, their family uh, can uh, regain their honor by disowning them. And they're even justified in killing them. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen 2,000 years ago. They estimate that one in seven Christians around the world live with high levels of persecution or discrimination simply for their faith. That's 360 million people. Just last year, thousands of Christians were martyred for their faith, thousands arrested and detained, thousands of churches shut down or attacked, not because of COVID protocols, but because of specific religious discrimination. See, we have to remember when we read these words that for so many, this is not academic or theoretical. That this, for so many, for so much of church history, has been the cost of following Jesus. And he's preparing us for that here, saying, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. Suffering because of a broken world that we live in, or suffering because of me, you will have trouble in this world. But he has overcome the world. Here's why this matters, I think. I think for many of us, um, when suffering comes our way, suffering for any number of reasons, when we experience brokenness or pain or pandemics, our response is the same as the disciples. Jesus, give me a timeline for when this is going to be over. You've given me a lot of kind of bad news here. You said a lot of bad things are coming and there's going to be wars and natural disasters and, and a lot of this stuff. Can, can I get an ETA for when this is going to be over? When is this going to end? Isn't that our temptation too? I can't tell you how many times over the last two years I've said the words, I can't get back, or I can't wait for things to get back to normal. When is this going to be over? 
Now, of course, that isn't bad to ask that question. It's not wrong to long for things to end. But look at Jesus' response instead. What does he say? In verse 5, he says, don't be deceived. In verse 7, he says, don't be alarmed. In verse 9, he says, be on your guard. And then look again with me to verse 13. Stand firm until the end, and you will be In other words, suffering is part of living in a fallen world. Will you trust him in the midst of it? Will you keep your focus on Jesus? Will you keep yourself from being led astray and believing in false hope and false teachers? Will you stand firm, even if following Jesus costs you everything? This is the type of faith that endures, and it is the type of faith that we have been called to today. This is the warning. Jesus continues uh, to give his followers a promise. Um, I don't know if I'm alone in this. I'm I'm guessing probably not, Uh, but there's something within me that that just wants to skip to the ending sometimes. You ever feel that way? Um, I remember when I was in high school, the the last uh, Harry Potter book came out, and I was, I read all those books and and, uh, which I know is a scary thing to say these days. Uh, but, but I w- read those books, and the, the book came out, um, and I was so nervous about what was going to happen, and I tried so hard not to do this, but I skipped to the last page just to see if the story was going to have a happy ending. And it ruined everything for me. I was so mad at myself. But we do this. We love knowing how things are going to end. In my lifetime, I can think of multiple times where people have been convinced that we have figured out the end of the world timeline. The biggest one, maybe you remember back in 2012, when the Mayan calendar was going to end, and and some people believed that that must mean the world is going to end as well. You remember that? They made a movie about it. It was this whole big thing. In fact, back in 2012, there was a poll done that showed that 10% of people believed that the world was going to end that year, and one in seven believed that it was going to happen in their lifetime. We love knowing the end of the story getting a glimpse of that final page. And here, Jesus gives us a few words to look forward to. Let's look at Mark chapter 13. We're going to skip ahead uh, to verse 24. He says this, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, here's where things can get a little tricky, so stay with me as we try to navigate all this. As we look at this promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. He's been talking about the trouble that the world is going to face, this great distress, or maybe tribulation is how your translation calls it. To understand what we're talking about here, though, we have to look at what Jesus is quoting. See, Jesus is referencing two Old Testament prophecies that can help us understand what he's talking about here. The first can be found in Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, There's a few other places as well, but Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, says this. Maybe it'll sound familiar. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And then verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God, 
like Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, judgment is coming. Judgment by God to the city of Babylon and to the world. So that's one. Then, the second one, found in uh, Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, put those two together. What you see is judgment, and yet out of judgment, deliverance. This coming king that is setting up his rule and his reign over all the world. This is what Jesus says is ahead of us. And this is where I'm going to disappoint some of you who want to spend more time theorizing and guessing at what all of this is going to look like. People have debated this and considered this for generations, if this is literal language or figurative, if the sun will actually go dark, or, and how we'll know when he arrives on the clouds, and there's just so much here. Of course, it's good to consider and reflect and learn from Scripture, but remember our goal today. Our goal, not just to see these words from Jesus, but to consider how we should live in light of them. This is Jesus' promise. That after this trouble and tribulation and distress, Jesus will come as judge and as king. He will come as judge to, to judge the corruption and the brokenness of our world, but also to set up his eternal kingdom. This is a sneak peek at the last page of the book. Jesus saying, just hold on, stand firm, because I am coming again as a reigning king. That you do not have to fear the future if you have put your trust in me. Again, this is not just intellectual. This should change how we think about and act towards God. Think about it. If God is who he says that he is, if he is your creator and mine, if he knew us before we were even born, if that is true, and if it's true that he is in charge at the end as well, that he will reign as king, if he was in charge in the beginning and in charge at the end, then shouldn't that reassure us that he is still reigning today? Maybe you need this reminder. But the one who created you and the one who promised he'll be back is still in charge today. He still has a plan. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. If he is strong enough for all of this, he is strong enough for you. Let's keep going. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the second promise. That not only does history have an end date, but that day is coming soon. That you can trust that as much as you can trust that when we're in springtime, that summer is on the way. Or, or maybe to put it into context for us here in Chicago in late February, that as much as we hope for and long for and trust that warmer weather is coming at some point, then we can hope for and long for and trust in the return 
of Jesus. That even if it might seem like it's taking forever to us as, as human beings to an eternal God, history is but a moment that is almost over. I wonder, do we live our lives as if that is true? Do we live our lives longing for and hoping for and living as if he is almost here? Do we live with urgency and purpose? Is this our response to the world when we see everything falling apart? When we look at the news and we see nations being invaded? When we look at our lives and we see people around us hurting and broken? Do we think about this, not just intellectually or theoretically, but as if it could happen and as if it will happen? Do we really believe that he is right at the door. Uh, next week, I'm going to uh, Florida for, for a wedding of one of my dearest friends, speaking of warmer weather. Um, and and uh, it's one of my closest friends in the world. We actually worked together at my first church in Ohio for about three years. Um, and our old boss is going to officiate the wedding. So I'm really looking forward to seeing these guys. And, and I have such fond memories of working with them. I don't know, maybe you've had a, a coworker that has been more than a coworker and become friends and, and even family, and, and that's who these guys are uh, for me. In fact, they were uh, some of the first people that I told uh, when my wife was taken to the hospital when her water broke at just 27 weeks pregnant. So we have been there for each other through it all. It was my first job out of college, and, and part of me just assumed that we would work together forever. That's the beauty of working in ministry, that sometimes God has other plans. And before I knew it, our time together uh, was over. Maybe you have someone like that. Someone in your life where you wish you would have known just how short your time together would be. Because you would have cherished it all the more. I think this is what Jesus is teaching us here. And for all we don't know, which is a lot, he has shown us a peek at the end of the book. That history has an end. And it could be any time. I don't know what it'll look like when Jesus comes on the clouds. I don't know if the fig tree refers to the nation of Israel, as some have said, or if it's just a fig tree. I don't know if the generation that he was talking about was the generation that saw the temple destroyed, or if he was talking about the church that the gates of hell would never overcome, or, or maybe both. What I do know is this, that what matters most from this message is what Jesus says to us time is short. He is on his way. He's at the door. He's almost there. Live as if that is true. Spend your life doing what matters. Don't be afraid of the future. He is coming not just as judge, but as king. And he has invited you and he has invited me to be part of that kingdom forever. And finally, that brings us to Jesus uh, last section of this response, we see a command. Uh, this command in verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. By the way, this is something to say if anyone ever tells you they know when the world's going to end, just read this verse to them. Say, if Jesus didn't know, as he emptied his glory, then neither do you. All right, verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tell the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, 
because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Three times Jesus gives us a command. You catch it? Verse 33, be alert. Verse 35, keep watch. Then verse 37, watch for the return of the master. In other words, this is Jesus' charge to his disciples and his charge to us today. To be ready for his return. To be ready for you don't know when that day will be. In fact, nobody does. Get the house ready because your parents are coming home. Be ready because the king is coming and you don't know how much time you have. Then look at verse 34. He has given you work to do. Most of you, I'm sure, have, uh, have heard about or been following in some way the, the news this week, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. And, and for many people, it's scary to think about those things happening in our world today, even though Jesus promised that they would come 2,000 years ago. A few days ago, I came across an article by um, a Ukrainian pastor written shortly before the invasion began. His name is, and I'm going to butcher this, uh, Vasil Ostry. Um, and he talked about, in his article, his decision uh, to stay with his church and to stay in the country. And he writes this. I love this. He says, how should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war, when there is constant fear in society? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. He talked about the efforts that their church is doing training people in first aid, offering their building as shelter, creating response teams to help in whatever way is needed. He went on to say, while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. But we may feel helpless in the, faith of, in the face of such a crisis we can pray like Esther. Ukraine is not God's covenant people, but like Israel, our hope is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. Friends, this is what it means to be ready, to stay awake, to do the work that God has left us. Our country is not being invaded, and we can be grateful for that. But make no mistake, to be a follower of Jesus is to step into spiritual battle every single day. People all around us are hurting and broken and lost. Our students are experiencing an epidemic of mental health issues. Our elders feel forgotten and left behind. Our families are fractured, country divided, the church is divided, the enemy is moving. Jesus says you have work to do. Don't just stay in your spiritual sleep. Don't be apathetic to the problems of this world. Pray fiercely and without ceasing. Find a place to get involved. Find the work that God has called you to and go do it. People's lives are on the line. We don't know how much time we have left. The Son of Man is coming, and soon. Let's follow the example of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters today. 
Let's serve our neighbors and let's faithfully trust the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day and this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word and the promises that we see in it. Lord, that even when we suffer, even when we see brokenness, even when we experience that pain, Lord, that you are coming to set up your eternal kingdom for us. That you have invited us into that today. God, I ask now as we consider your word that you would show us the work that you have called us to. Show us what it means to stay awake, to be ready, to do what you have called us to do. Empower us in your spirit to do that now. 